Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code program. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Thank you. Hello, welcome to Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists, and this time we're at University College London with Geraint Jones from UCL's Mallard Space Science Laboratory and the European Space Agency's Matt Taylor, who's here to give a lecture looking forward to the Rosetta mission's arrival at a comet in just a few weeks' time. We'll also feature NASA's plan to rescue the Columbia astronauts and the challenges of government in space. One of the things that has been so important in the history of of human civilization is freedom and liberty. So what we wanted to do is to try and think about liberty beyond the Earth and what freedom would mean to people living on other planetary bodies. Ten years ago, the European Rosetta spacecraft left the Earth and headed on a long, long journey to a comet. It's involved flybys of the Earth, Mars and asteroids Lutetia and Steins. And finally, in August, after a series of thruster burns and orbital correction manoeuvres, it arrives at Comet 67P, Churyumov, Gerasimenko. Can you say that again? Why? No, just because I want to hear 67P, Churyumov. I thought, oh good, I've done it all the way through. Well, I've got a vested interest in this mission. I reported on its launch in 2004 for the BBC and have also been making news films on Rosetta for ESA. But whenever I've been anywhere to do with Rosetta, the chances are I've bumped into Matt Taylor. Matt, are you a space groupie or what is your official involvement with Rosetta? Right, my official involvement is that I am the project scientist, the European Space Agency's project scientist of Rosetta. What that ultimately means is that it's my job to ensure that the science that the scientists want out of the mission gets done to the best of our capabilities from the space agency, so the constraints that we have from the spacecraft. How do you manage that? Because there are are 21 instruments uh, combined on the orbiter and the lander, so that's at least 21 principal investigators. Some of them have KUPIs. That's a lot of of science to organise. I would say it's my job to keep everyone equally happy, but more that it's my job to keep everyone equally unhappy. (laughs) In what way? (laughs) Well, it's just to try and keep that, that, that level, that I'm not biased in any one direction, and that's, that's my day-to-day job. So what have we got to look forward to in, in August? Uh, I know it's arriving, but it's, it's arriving in style, and it's, it's quite an unusual manoeuvre. Yeah, we came out of hibernation in January this year, and at that time we were travelling around 800 metres a second with relative speed to the comet. So, so we didn't shoot past the comet, we had to arrest that speed. And in the last few months, we've been making rendezvous manoeuvres, so braking, as it were, to reduce that relative speed. In August, we'll get within 100 kilometres of the comet, and that's when we say we have rendezvoused with the comet Churyumov-Gerasimenko. So that's ultimately one of the first main goals of our mission, to rendezvous with this comet. Never been done before. 
But it's doing it in this sort of triangular way as well. When I've seen the animations, obviously, and, and it sort of goes up, down, across, up, sort of right. like a Heathrow flight plan yeah, that's, that's in an unusual shape. The, as we come into rendezvous, we begin these orbits that you're, that you're alluding to. These are these pyramidal orbits after August up to November when we deploy the lander. So we are gradually approaching. Once we get to 100 kilometres, we have to accurately map the comet. This is an important part of the mission that we don't know that much about the comet. We know roughly its shape, roughly its rotation rate. Now, to get a real good idea of where you're going to put a lander, we have to take the next few months to carefully approach the comet and map it, both for the landing but also to learn how to fly the spacecraft around the comet itself. Now, you say to map it... Do you have any idea exactly what it's made of, how solid it is, how liquid it is, how gaseous it is? Presumably not liquid. Well, it's liquid in that it's got frozen liquid. They're predominantly made of ice, but with other material. They're dirty, icy balls. (coughs) (laughs) We we know what you mean. (laughs) Snowballs. Should we say snowballs? Yeah. Yeah. We have a rough idea of what comets are made of. We have a rough idea based on the ground-based observations we have, the near-Earth space-based observations, as I said, of a rough rotation rate of over 12 hours, plus a a rough idea of the density as well. But we won't know until we get there. So that's why it's important to have these very strange orbits, because we have to gradually, slowly approach little baby steps rather than jumping to get a good feel for how the spacecraft's going to interact with a comet. All of this information will, as I say, go into the mapping, but also allow us to understand how to ride or drive the bus that is Rosetta around the comet itself. What speed is it going at? The comet itself is travelling, I think, somewhere around, if memory serves correct, I think it's 30 or 40 kilometres a second with respect wow. to the sun. I, again, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I know when we came out of hibernation it was about 18 kilometres a second. I think you draw a line between 18 and about 40 is the relative speed, I think, during lander deployment. But the important thing is the spacecraft is only travelling metres a second with relation to the comet. So as I say, by August it's going to get one metre a second relative speed to walking pace with a comet, and it's going to remain like that for over a year. I mean, that's stunning, that's isn't it? Yeah. A phenomenal number of unknowns here, given the, the, how audacious this mission is to land on a comet. I think that's a key point, but I should add, it's not just about the landing. For me, the major aim of this mission is, is the escort phase. So we do the rendezvous in August. We're going to be doing these strange orbits to map the comet and get a feel for the comet, That's important for the landing, which for me is the cherry on the top of the the mission. But the mission will last all the way through till the end of 15, and that's important to to realise, to really get that feel for how a comet behaves. For me, that's the ultimate answer we're going to get from the mission, is how does a comet work when it passes past the sun, when it passes through closest approach to the sun, which will actually occur next August 2015. We're going to make the measurements now for the relatively inert, there is some activity, but a a bearish nucleus, it'll become its most active during summer next year, and we'll see how that works, how the comet starts to work around the sun and how its interaction works. Is there a possibility that because of the activity and as the comet gets more active, the closer it gets to the sun, that actually it will be too active for a, a lander to land? We have a lot of predictions based on near-Earth observations of the comet since it was selected, and even before then, and we get an idea of how, what the activity is like as it gets closer to the sun. So from that, we predict certain levels of activity. Within the planning, the operations planning that we have, we have a low-activity case and a high-activity case. The high-activity case is 
an accentuation of everything we think is kind of a robust case. And no matter what happens, unless the comet splits in two, for instance, we should be able to, or we will be able to, stay around the comet and carry out the mission, regardless of the activity level, based on what we understand from that class of comet. Now, Gerant, we're going to talk later about a mission you're involved in, which is sort of related to Rosetta. But you're actually involved in this mission as well, and you'll be following what happens. I'm one of the team of people who will be planning to observe the comet from the ground. So for the first time, we'll be able to look at the comet from the Earth with all the big telescopes and some in space as well. And having a comet there while we're observing it from here allows us to calibrate all the other observations of comets. So it's going to be fantastic that we're looking at this comet in huge detail over the next 18 months. But not all comets are the same. So using the Rosetta data, we can calibrate exactly the data we get back from telescopes here and apply it to observations of other comets and learn about all of them. Well, stay with us both and we'll move on to the dangerous business of manned spaceflight. Columbia, you send your go at throttle up. The throttle-up call acknowledged by Commander Rick Husband, joined on the flight deck by pilot Willie McCool, flight engineer Culp Nachavla, and mission specialist Dave Brown, mission specialist Laurel Clark, payload commander Mike Anderson, and payload specialist Ilan Ramon seated down on the mid-deck. One minute, 26 seconds into the flight, Columbia 10 miles downrange, 13 miles in altitude, traveling at 1,800 miles an hour. Everything looking good on board, Columbia. Well, tragically for the crew, that wasn't the case. At around that point in the 2003 flight, a chunk of protective foam slammed into the leading edge of the wing. With the space shuttle travelling at twice the speed of sound, it was equivalent to hitting it with a lump of concrete. Well, those seven crew members perished 17 days later when the shuttle broke up on re-entry. But could they have been saved? Retired NASA engineer and shuttle expert David Baker has studied plans that suggest they could. A rescue would have involved launching another shuttle, Atlantis, before Columbia's crew were asphyxiated by a build-up of carbon dioxide. But as David told me, mission controllers needed to appreciate the significance of the damage and act quickly to save the astronauts. You had to give the go at day two. What that required was to then look and see how many crew members do we have to launch on Atlantis. You would have needed two to fly the shuttle into station keep with Columbia in orbit, and you'd needed two to act as spacewalkers. Now, you would have had to have had a turnaround preparation which would have massively slashed the standard times that are required. You needed a whole new set of algorithms in the software. In order to get the crew trained, you had to have a series of simulations. So you had to mock up the conditions. You had to design and build a special extendable boom that would carry two crew members across. So that's how you do it in space. So you'd have Columbia up there orbiting around the Earth. You'd send up Atlantis into the same orbit. They would rendezvous fairly close. I mean, NASA's been doing this since the mid-1960s. And then you have almost like a rope between the two. Yes, when they rendezvous, it's going to require manual station keeping for at least two and a half days because the two shuttles are going to be one inverted upon the other, the upper one rotated 90 degrees around to avoid the tails clashing. And you need to keep about 20 feet away for two and a half days of manual operation. So the two pilots in Atlantis would have had to have controlled it to have kept it that distance. 
two EVA crew members would then have gone out with a boom to the airlock on Columbia, delivering additional lithium hydroxide canisters to lower the carbon dioxide and buy a little bit of extra time there and to deliver two spacesuits because they didn't have spacesuits aboard Columbia. You would have then had the two prepare in the airlock to come out and the two EVA members from Atlantis would have helped them over to Atlantis. They would have had to have got those suits off. Then you'd have had to reverse the process all over again and husband out the next two. When you get to just three left, the third exchange has to go one guy on his own because you don't want one guy left in Colombia on his own having to muscle a suit on by himself. So you go two plus two plus one plus two in getting the seven across. Then the final act of the last man out of Colombia is to configure the switches so that mission control can remotely access the guidance and navigation system and fire the retro rockets that will bring Colombia down to its doom in a control part of the South Pacific. And then you've got 11 crew members aboard Atlantis in a never-before-flown number of crew members coming back with... Some of them strapped on couches on the floor. This really would have been an emergency return and by that way got the crew back. Was this a plan that they just pulled off the shelf? This was something that people had considered. What's the worst case scenario with the shuttle if it's stranded in orbit, we can't bring it back? Very similar to Apollo 13 in that very little that was done to bring Apollo 13 back was actually completely new. It was a combination of things that were never in the wildest imaginations of anybody in mission control would all happen at the same time in the same sequences. But bits of this and bits of that were put together rather like a selective menu of options that you pull out. Elements of the potential Columbia rescue plan were completely new and it was refined in totality after the mission itself when it was realised we may have to do this again and what are the actual aspects of actually making it work if we have to rescue the crew again. Of course, because of the severity of this and because people said everything's got to go immediately right and you've got to get off almost immediately after launch in order to be able to launch a shuttle again within three weeks to get the crew back... That played a major contribution in people getting very frightened about continuing to run the shuttle programme. You mentioned Apollo 13. Very famously, that was uh, the phrase failure was not an option has, has been attached to that. I suppose with Apollo 13, they had a rescue ship there already in in the lunar lander and they had a, a backup engine. But there was always the the thought, right, we're going to put all this effort in, we're going to work 24 hours a day, we're going to get this crew back. Was there not the same attitude with Columbia? Did they not realise the severity of what had happened to the leading edge of the wing? That question goes to the very core of the cultural difference between NASA in the Apollo era and NASA in the latter part of the shuttle era. Apollo was used to a completely separate set of missions, even though, as far as the public concerned, we were going to yet another lunar site. Everything was unique to each particular mission. On shuttle, everything was constructed around routinized procedures. There was a procedure for everything. And if a procedure didn't fit, you knew it would take weeks and months. It normally takes 18 months to write a new software package for a shuttle mission. This had to be done in 48 hours. And it it could have been done 
It would have been possible, but frankly, the mindset rigidized to a far greater extent than the flexibility we had during Apollo of lightning decisions, quick reaction responses. The whole culture, dare I say, outside NASA as well, by this new century, had become much more of a collective decision through committees, and you did not have that seizure of command and control that you had in Apollo. Retires NASA engineer and author of the Haynes Manual on the Space Shuttle, David Baker. I should also say he worked on Apollo 13, so he very much knows what he's talking about. Um, what do we think of, of that? It's a very beguiling scenario, these sort of what-if questions, aren't they? I mean, Matt, what, what do you make of, of that? Well, personally, it's, you know, you can say a lot with the benefit of hindsight. There are... Space travel is not easy. It is very challenging. So I think this is, this is the result. This is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook and at spaceboffins.com, which we may even update at some point. We may. You'll have to keep checking and see. How do you govern a colony on the Moon or Mars? Do you have a democracy or do you run it like the Starship Enterprise with a rigid command structure? Well, those were questions tackled by scientists, philosophers and political theorists at the recent Extraterrestrial Liberty Conference. Human rights and freedoms... I'm in a windowless room at Vauxhall in South London, surrounded by several groups of four or five people huddled around the constitutions of Iceland, Japan, Mongolia and the United States. Their task? To come up with a constitution for the moon. I'm Charles Coquel and I'm Professor of Astrobiology at the University of Edinburgh. Why did you decide to run this conference? The future of humanity beyond the Earth is a very interesting subject. It's a very interesting topic to consider. But one of the things that has been so important in the history of of human civilization is freedom and liberty. So what we wanted to do is to try and think about liberty beyond the Earth and what freedom would mean to people living on other planetary bodies. So the final amendment in the Bill of Rights, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution. Could I just have your name? I'm Janet, Janet Devine. I've heard, I've heard sort of bounced around the table, I've been listening in, I've heard a few references to Star Trek uh, on this table. <laughs> and, and do you think that's actually quite a, a useful way of, of seeing, I mean, it, it was a space opera, really, mm. it's of, of, of people living in space. It's actually quite a useful reference. Well, yes, it is, because the, the, the people who wrote that and envisaged the entire series had a system in place. There is a federation in place. There are procedures about invading alien space. The post-capitalist society, very nice. Yeah, well, that's hugely important. If you're setting up a settlement, what's, what are the economic things going to be? And we've been trying to get people away from thinking about setting up an economy that's similar to what we've got on Earth. It's, it's, it could be completely different. I mean, in a sense, utopian. But to go back to that question about Star Trek, the system exists, you know, the shape of the thing exists. So, in, of course, it's theory. Science fiction becomes science fact. Yeah. So, who are the Star, who are the Star Trek fans around the table here? 
Oh, so pretty much everyone, pretty much everyone here. Degree, I think. It is, but you have to. I'd, I'd just like to throw in that we are actually academics, so our approach to this may be a little, little more different to just them sort of dressing up. Though God bless the people who do. But the, the thing is, it is very interesting. I mean, James T. Kirk was the father to my generation. Frankly, he was, a, you know, the person, the, the ultimate human who made mistakes but came out on top every time. The relevance now is that there's an increasing number of nation states going into space. There's an increasing number of private companies that are building uh, rockets that will eventually take people into space. And with this increasing effort in space exploration, it's becoming very important to think about um, what is the nature of freedom? Who's going to control space? Will it be corporations? Will it be the state? How is the individual to have any freedom in an environment that's absolutely lethal? I mean, in space... Uh, the oxygen you breathe will always be controlled uh, by a manufacturing process um, that's been set up probably by someone else. So how do you have any semblance of liberty in a lethal environment? As more and more people go into space, I think this is becoming a question that is no longer science fiction, but is very much uh, at the forefront of, of how we go about settling space. Now, the exercise today, you were basing that on other constitutions. So you had Japan, Mongolia, Iceland, and the U.S. constitution. What would be different about, say, a lunar constitution or a Mars constitution that means you couldn't just adopt an Earth constitution? Well, it's important to realise that we can take many of the aspects of Earth constitutions. It would be naive to start trying to build a society from scratch. We have hundreds of years of experience of building constitutions, some of which work, some of which work less well. We should build on that experience. But then there are things about space that are categorically different from the Earth environment. And in particular, the problem of oxygen. Oxygen, air, will be under the control of governments or corporations. Some interesting ideas came out of this. One I was intrigued by was this idea that you have a colony run by some elected people, but others who are selected by a lottery. Yes, well, these are not new ideas, of course. Um, People were selected by lottery in ancient Athens. There are ideas that have actually been long since buried for thousands of years that work very well in, in an extreme environment where you are threatened by um, instant death by any problems like depressurization. You lose all your oxygen. And so having a system where everyone has a vested interest in the political system is a good thing to do. Apathy in a, in a lethal environment is not a good thing. You want everyone to take an interest in the way in which political systems are developing. Another problem you have in, the, in an extreme space environment is that it is a tyranny-prone environment in the sense that if someone gets control of oxygen, they could very well have control over the whole population and could threaten dire consequences of a lack of oxygen in, in return for extraordinary levels of power. Where were you? Defining the legislature. And I think that's where we'll leave the discussion. The final report from the conference will be put together later on in the year. And next year's conference is how to overthrow your space colonies government once you've set it up in the first place. Uh, uh, Matt, I mean, do you agree it's a good idea to at least talk about? this stuff. I mean, we talked about Star Trek in there, but actually these were very serious discussions based on world constitutions. Ultimately, we should be going off the planet at some point. So yes, there has to have this kind of consideration when there's going to be more than one nation. How well that can be done, I mean, it's challenging enough to try and get Europe together, let alone 
all of the international community on a different planet. So it has to be carefully considered as to how this gets put in place, certainly. Geraint, we were all listening to that and thinking, all Star Trek, Total Recall, Star Wars, all these sci-fi references. But again, this could be, this could be real, this could be the reality. Yeah, you forgot Babylon 5, yes. Um, <laughs> no one, no one wants to remember Babylon 5. Yeah, my interest in that has faded. Um, I mean, eventually, yeah, these kind of agreements, laws, constitutions, etc. need to be laid down. And, and for example, with the, the International Space Station, there's already a, a loose example of the beginnings of that type of agreement that has to be applied. It's very early days. It's good that some people are already uh, discussing this, but I would think that we're probably several decades, if not a century, yeah. away from actually admit, needing constitutions. I could constitutions. Of, um, Battlestar Galactica, because that's what that whole series is effectively out, uh, about, really, apart from what it is to be human. It's about how do you have a democracy in space when, actually, when there is an emergency, which is what they're going to be considering next. Sounds like, though, oxygen or lack of oxygen focuses the mind. (laughs) (laughs) Or defocuses it. I do wonder about the lottery aspect of it, though. Did you not sort of... Because my my sort of antenna went bing when it said, A, the Constitution of Mongolia, because I thought, what? Mm. What What is the Constitution of Mongolia? And B, a lottery. Because there are some people, the thought of them picking a ticket to become, you know, head of this comet or head of this moon outpost, I would find quite helpful. I can answer the Mongolian question. Oh, yeah. The Mongolian question. So they had uh, the constitutions of Mongolia, Iceland, Japan, and the US. And uh, fundamentally, those other constitutions are based more or less on the American constitutions. They were variations on a theme. Iceland's interesting, perhaps more so than Mongolia, in that that is an extreme environment. And they have particular clauses in the Iceland constitution to do with the extreme environment. So that was the relevance, relevance of that. I was thinking of Iceland being like one, one big asteroid but in the, in the sea. <laughs> Once again, complaints to Sue Nelson. <laughs> Which brings me back to your interest, Geraint, in your studying these mysterious objects, aren't they, which are sort of part asteroid, part comet. Yeah, so they've been termed uh, main belt comets. Uh, others call them active asteroids. So as the names suggest... They were believed to be asteroids for a long time, but a few of them uh, are actually active and they occasionally have tails. And a few of them, as they go around the Sun, they're all between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, Um, they're active for the same period of their year. So it looks like it's a seasonal effect. So this suggests that there are patches of ice, exposed ice on these, uh, these bodies, and then for part of the year they're exposed to sunlight, gas, drives dust off and you get a, a comet-like dust tail. And these weren't discovered that long ago, were they? No, no, it's just in the past uh, 10 or 15 years that these have been found. So the, the best one, or the best example, is Elst Pizarro, and originally an asteroid. Now it's got a number as well, 133P. It's been also listed as a, as a comet as well. So are you hoping to put a mission together to study these? Because obviously Matt's got his Rosetta, his, it's like his personal mission here. <laughs> So there's a team of us who are going to propose a mission uh, called Castalia. The mission would travel to one of these main belt comets, and so we'd be able to study one of these new solar system bodies for the first time. So it is a completely new class of bodies. We're finding that there isn't a clear dividing line between asteroids and comets. There's actually a 
a range of bodies, some with small amounts of ice, others possibly with huge amounts of ice. Um, so one of the reasons for doing this is uh, it's not clear where all the Earth's water has come from. So Rosetta will uh, will look closely at uh, isotope ratios of some, as- some atoms have got different types. Uh, and by looking at the ratios of, for example, hydrogen to deuterium uh, in Churyumov-Gerasimenko, we can compare that to what we have on Earth and see if comets could be the source of, of water on the Earth. And lots of people have proposed these main belt comets as a, as a big source of, of water on the Earth as well. So we'd really like to go there and, and measure the composition of the ices up close. That's great to bring us full circle to uh, Rosetta. Extremely exciting time. And I know you've worked on a, a few missions, not least because you've got a tattoo of cluster uh, on one of your... Is that on your leg? Yeah, or on, my leg. on your leg, yes. Leg. <laughs> <laughs> how many... Actually, first of all, how many mission tattoos have you got? I've only got two mission tattoos, oh. yeah. I started with the cluster tattoo, and when I arrived or I, I, I came onto the Rosetta mission, I was very uh, honest with everyone who was on the mission and said, look, I've got tattoos. It's obvious if you see me in short sleeves. Mm. And I also have a cluster tattoo. And this was before the hibernation exit. I promised that... If Rosetta came out of hibernation, I would get a Rosetta tattoo, and the rest is history. Where's your Rosetta tattoo? It's on my thigh. Can we see that? You've got shorts on, I should say. There you go. So you haven't seen it. There you go. That is fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, I've actually, I've already put a picture of this on on the Space Boffins um, website, and you you weren't too happy at me calling you the David Beckham of space, were you? No, I couldn't (laughs) understand it, because these are good tattoos by my... My great tattooist, uh, Eternal Art Prizeman, so he, he would be upset to be compared to the same tattooist. No, all of these are, these are custom tattoos, and they're very good. So any plans for any more once Rosetta... It, it, I mean, you've got the Phil Lander on there as well, so you've actually covered both bases, but you're not going to go in for tattoo removal if it successfully orbits and the lander doesn't land. That's how confident I am with the mission. Excellent. Matt Taylor and Geraint Jones, thank you very much indeed. And that's the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with... The Naked Scientists. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and ABSL Space Products. I'm Sue Nelson. And I'm Richard Hollingham. We'll be back next month with a podcast special, an interview with Gene Cernan, the last man on the moon. Thanks for listening. We leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return. With peace and hope for all mankind.